Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So good evening, everyone. So I'm happy to get to speak with you tonight, some about reflections in our life and about what we're doing on retreat and what we might be learning here or what there is to learn. So I was reflecting on the, you know, the, the ways people come to retreat and expectations that people have. <clears throat> and I think for this retreat, we labeled it well. It was called Thanksgiving Insight Meditation Retreat. So that's quite descriptive. But sometimes we describe them you know, in very beautiful terms, I've noticed now, especially um, in California in this century now, for the Vipassana retreats, it's like um, you know, resting in innate freedom and um, like compassionate hearts and awake minds and these beautiful things. And from you know, listening to the interviews and the discussions uh, today, uh, I think we're all familiar with the fact that there's a lot of difficulty that can come from paying attention to your body-mind system. But, you know, if we actually describe them like, you know, come royal in the difficult mind states over and over again. (laughs) Come rest in your annoying emotions as they repeat endlessly, whether you want them to or not. (laughs) Come become very close to your grief with no escape routes, all escape routes cut out, you know. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe less people would come. So, uh, And it's both sides, right? I mean, retreat can be so beautiful. There's a simplicity to life and a way in which you can connect with really simple things with such intimacy and beauty. Uh, and at the same time, it can be very difficult because part of what we connect with as we start to become aware is this aspect of Dukkha, of the difficulty of our life. So that's a little bit of what I want to talk about uh, here today. So this was the, the main thrust of the Buddha's teaching, was to highlight for us that there are these elements of our existence, so many of them, that are actually difficult for us. And the word he uses is dukkha. It's translated often as pain, strain, stress, suffering, unsatisfactoriness. And it covers the wide gamut from basic physical pain, uh, being sick, uh, dying, aging, difficult mental states, so sorrow, uh, grief, pain, distress, despair. You talked about association with what you don't like, being put in proximity what you don't like as a dukkha, as difficult. Separation from what you like also is difficult. In general, not getting what you want is difficult, of course. So it's referring to this wide range of physical and mental states that are there uh, and really our relationship to our life itself. You know, the basic conditions of our life from the time of birth. And it's interesting in the, in the practice, you know, the, the practice that we're doing here is just cultivating a very gentle awareness. So connecting with the way things are. So the way things truly are in reality, in our body-mind system. 
you know, understanding how it works. How does it work in our body and mind together? <clears throat> what are the things that actually lead to happiness? What is the cause of our difficulty in our life? And looking into that directly, not through thinking about it or reading someone else's ideas about it, but through direct experience, you know, investigation in the moment to moment of how this unfolds in our existence. And it's so easy for us to try to dodge this. You know, I, th- I find it very poignant that for most of us, our general strategy for happiness is about lining up pleasant experiences and avoiding difficult experiences. So we want to be comfortable. We want things to conform to our desires. We want people to treat us the way that we want to be treated. Of course, this makes sense, right? We want there to be the sounds that we like to hear, and we don't want there to be sounds we don't want to hear. We want people to act around us in the ways that we would like them to. So it sounds kind of reasonable, but then when you start to think about it, it's really not a very likely winning strategy for success, right? So wanting everyone to only act the way that you want them to. Wanting only sounds that you want to hear to come. You know. Even within your own mind-body system, you know, wanting only certain thoughts to arise, wanting only certain emotions to arise, you're wanting only certain body sensations to arise. So as you said, you see more and more that it's not really under your control. You know, th- this stuff just keeps coming, emotions and body sensations and so on, and it's very difficult to manage it, and you're not really the, the puppet master, you know? But still, like very poignantly, you can see yourself constantly strategizing around this. And in fact, even as you're sitting here, notice like even the small movements that we make of our body very commonly that we don't think anything about, like even brushing the hair aside or you know, shifting like this. It actually has to do with facing some aspect of dukkha, so unsatisfactory, painful body experience, and then trying to get a better one. And it's happening like all the time. So the conditions of the retreat are such that you know, we've simplified things down so there's not a lot of escape that we usually get to try to not see this. So usually if you start to get bored or uncomfortable, there's a number of kind of strategies that you probably have in your life to deal with this. And you can think of them. It's not too hard because it's probably the things that you wished that you could be doing <laughs> when things were a bit uncomfortable. Like, oh, I wish I could watch TV or read something, listen to music, talk to someone, call someone, you know, any number of like dodges or alcohol or drugs or, you know, <clears throat> even just being busy, you know, being busy is a way to avoid facing some of these aspects of our existence. Yeah. So then suddenly, you know, in this very simple, basic situation where the escape routes are cut off, you know, and, and there it is right there, like really no escape from it. And watch yourself dodge, you know, watch yourself try to escape in any number of different ways. So even very basically, you know, with the schedule, so it's a very simple schedule, you know, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, lunch, you know. So you challenge yourself and see, can I just follow that schedule, you know, for that one period, the morning, the afternoon, you know, or watch as you try to dodge, 
like walking meditation gets boring, so I want to do something more exciting. You know, I go look for the animals outside, or you know, I go for a walk. I try to entertain myself in some way with the thin, tiny shreds of entertainment that I have uh, <laughs> available to myself here, desperately looking at bushes and plants and you know something. And it all is really just trying to drum up pleasant experience. You know, like when you when you when you. Scratch the surface of all of that. It's just a desperate attempt to line up pleasant experiences to avoid unpleasant experiences, uh, even to avoid neutral experiences, too. And it's really very poignant to, to feel this. You know, this is also not just the condition of your life. This is the condition of all of us. You know, all human beings, all living beings have this. You know, as soon as we take birth in physical body, then we're subject to all of these different forces of pain, of stuff that we can't control, you know. So what's our relationship to all of that? You know, how can we be with that? So the the instructions here are actually that we want you to explore this. And it's really the opposite direction from what your instinct may be telling you to do. You know, when there's something unpleasant or difficult... Like you want to bounce, you know. You want to find something else or distract yourself or get away from it. And that seems to be like a reasonable thing to do. But what happens if you do that is that you spend half your life bouncing, right? At least half your life, if not more, because that's so much of our existence. And not only that for your own existence, you actually can't be with other people very much because they also manifest with difficulty, you know, with pain, with suffering. So if you can't be with it with yourself, you also can't be with it with them. So we spend then so much time fleeing, you know, a lot of energy fleeing and avoiding this truth. So this is the, describing the Buddha as the first noble truth, and there's something comforting to hear that this is a, actual truth of our human existence. You know, it's not something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, Like this is the nature of your human birth, the physical pain of it. The difficulties of the, the mental suffering too. You know, we can explore that and understand that. So the invitation with this understanding about dukkha is actually to get into it really. So draw closer to it. You become intimate with that aspect of existence. Again, not something that we put on the initial flyer, become intimate with suffering. (laughs) But this is really where it's at now, you know? Like, this is what's up. This is what's going on in your existence. So if you want to understand the mind-body system, if you want to understand what's going on, then this is where to look. You know, this is where to put your attention to observe, to understand. There's a way in, in many activities in which it's helpful to go slow in order to go fast. So to slow things down, to develop an understanding, or to develop technique in some way. So i give you an example. I, I, uh, I learned how to swim when I was a kid, but then more recently I started doing these um, st- swimming stroke improvement classes. And I hadn't really paid that much attention to swimming stroke since I was like a kid. 
But once I started to do these classes, I saw that there was actually so many ways that I was swimming that were inefficient, uh, that I didn't really think about. And so then, in order to learn how to do it in a more efficient way, the swimming instructor would have us break down the stroke and first do the arm part. And not just the arm part, but like one part, like entering the water. You know, what's the angle that you're entering the water in the front crawl? And are you like slapping out there? Or are you going down like this? So, you know, do many drills just doing that, right? And then doing some drills, paying attention to the position of the head in the water. So, like, my head was like a little bit facing up a little bit. There's a little bit of fear, like, oh, am I going to bump into the wall, you know? So then I was swimming with my body like this, so there's a lot of resistance from the water. It's not an efficient way to swim. So if you put the head down a little bit more, then you're swimming like this. It's, it's much easier, right? So then a lot of attention to this small thing, you know, just the, the tilt of the head, you know, a lot of time doing that. So little by little, kind of breaking down each of the different aspects of the, the stroke and the body position and things. And then slowly... Like more recently, after doing this for a long time, I realized like, oh, it's coming a bit more naturally to me now, like to keep the head down. You know, I've kind of gotten over that fear, like I'm going to bump into the wall. Or now I'm able to do f- much faster the, the stroke in the way that the technique is better. And kind of effortlessly, then I'm able to move more quickly and more efficiently, and it takes less energy. So in some ways, you could think about retreat like this too. You know, so you're actually dropping all of this other stuff that goes on that distracts you and really paying attention for this time, slowing down to like, all right, what's the story in the mind-body system? You know, what's the ways in which I get into hassles, suffering, trouble, do things I regret, uh, spiral downwards? Like, what's going on with that? So let me slow down, kind of break it down, you know, really pay attention, get interested in it knowing that you're not going to necessarily live this exact same way when you go home, you know. But the time that you'll spend here will both develop insights that will help you and also actually in some way will have developed some techniques, you know, that will continue in your regular life. So this retreat time is really a very precious, beautiful opportunity to do that. You know, it's like um, the perfect conditions for it here. You know, the food is taken care of. We get fed really nice vegetarian food. You just show up there and it's on the table, right? Uh, and then uh, you don't have that many people bugging you to do things. You, know, you have one little one job you have to do a little bit. and you know, Otherwise, you're just there to do your practice. So it's, it's kind of a relief, not so many other responsibilities for the moment. But then, what should be the problem, you know? There's a direction, sit there and breathe and... Like, why would there be a problem? Like, what's actually going on? So, some of it is the pain of the body. We can attend to that, and it's helpful to attend to that. But a good deal of that is also actually the movements of the mind. And here's where it gets really interesting to pay attention to what is going on in the system. So for many of us, there are things that are going on in our experience that uh, bother us, for example. So people have described things like sounds other people make, sneezing, coughing, breathing too loudly, you know, right? Uh, Sounds externally, like trucks coming, different things like that. So our initial reaction is like, oh, that thing's a problem, and the mind starts to make a story about it, right? 
Like, they shouldn't be driving trucks up here. This is a meditation center. It should be quiet. <laughs> then, depending on the temperament of your mind, you might, like, machinate some schedule for when they should do deliveries. Like, they should do deliveries only these days, and they, you know, right? Like, you get really into it. The interesting thing is that that sound itself is already gone. You know, that sound is long gone while you're machinating all these things. So what is it that's bothering you now is actually your own mind. You know? Nobody's bothering you anymore, right? It's the mind. It's the mind that's bothering you. There was a sound. The sound was unpleasant to you. Or maybe the sound was even just neutral, but you had a story about it that it shouldn't be like that. And then based on that, there's this whole kind of world of suffering that gets created. A world in which we then happily uh, move into, live in, you know, like dust things, sit down, take a seat, you know, we're fully there. So watch how this happens, you know, over and over again with the mind. This aspect of, of dukkha, of suffering, is the one that it's much more possible for us to alleviate. So the direct physical pain of the body is something that will happen but then the mental part that gets laid on that is the part that's additional. So Buddha talked about this as like the second arrow, you know, it gets shot, like we're shooting ourselves in that case. So get interested. This is a great place to see this, see how the mind creates this suffering, you know, this, this difficulty for us. One of my favorite um, stories about this is a story of someone who goes to a cave and paints a picture of a tiger and then they look at the picture of the tiger and they go, ah, tiger, and they run away screaming. You know? <laughs> so it's a famous story and it's, it's really funny. Like, why did they run away? They made the tiger, right? But watch how your mind does this all the time. You know, how you, you're just sitting here breathing, no one's bugging you. A thought arises, you believe in that thought, and then you create a whole world around it. Emotional reaction arises from that, you know, and then we're off. So we live in these imaginary worlds, you know, much of the time. It's a habit of mind. You know, it's a habit of mind that happens. Interesting thing is that you think, oh, well, wouldn't we make only beautiful worlds? Because we also sometimes will paint a beautiful picture, a fantasy, and then live in that imaginary world. But no, we equally inhabit the terrifying worlds that we make up and the beautiful worlds. You know, we're just going down any, any different paths like this. So this is the untrained mind. You know, this is, this is delusion, actually. So I'll mention a few uh, other common ones that um, some of you who have been on retreats will be familiar with. Uh, there is, for example, the Vipassana romance. <laughs> so this is where you might, um, you know, catch out of the corner of your eye someone who, for some reason, you decide is pleasing to you. Uh, even though you've never spoken to them. And then you see them again, maybe in the dining hall, and they're sitting somewhere near you, and you think, oh, maybe they sat there on purpose, you know. And then little by little, you start to build up. You watch them. They walk so mindfully. They sit so mindfully. They're really very spiritual. When you finish the retreat, you'll talk to them, and you'll have a really good conversation. Maybe you'll go out to lunch. You'll get to know each other. You'll get married. You move in together. You'll have a nice apartment with a nice altar with like the tanka, like this thing here, right? So you're living, you know, you've created this complete fiction, right? You don't know the first thing about this person. Uh, 
And yet we spend all this time living in that world, you know, ignoring what is actually happening in the present moment, you know. The other side, depending on your temperament, is the vipassana vendetta. (laughs) So here's where the aversive mind takes hold. Uh, Someone does some, um, you know, unforgivable crime like taking the last banana or something. (laughs) And then, you know, you think... Like, oh, they're so selfish, they couldn't have cut it in half, I didn't get a banana today, it's really terrible. Then they happen to take, like, your walking spot the next time, you know? (laughs) The one you like to go to at exactly 310, and uh, then they're in the lane that you like, so then further animosity developed towards this poor, innocent being, quietly walking back and forth, and... Then everything about them starts to rile you. You know, you don't like the way they dress or they walk or anything, right? So then creates again. In our own world, we've created this completely, not completely fictionalized, yeah. And I know that we're not, uh, we're not exempt from this too, the teachers up here, from becoming the re- recipients of these two. <laughs> so, you know, but it's good to see these and just take your mind with a grain of salt. You know, just see these patterns of mind Seeing them can help you to, uh, seeing these, these patterns can help you to have a little bit more space from the mind itself. You know, see these thoughts that arise as not yourself. You know, these are these habitual patterns that come. And with many of them, there's a sort of insert photo here quality to them, too. You know, like you brought the mind on, vac- on, on retreat, you know, you brought the same mind on retreat that you had at home. So probably the patterns that are playing out here are ones that manifest in your life in some way or another too. So you're seeing them in some version here um, that may be more uh, vivid than usual. It may be also a bit more ridiculous than usual because the conditions of retreat are so kind of simplified that watching yourself like make lists about your shoes or something, you know, it seems ridiculous, right? and sometimes we call it like yogi mind. You know, we get riled about something very small that happens like that. But it's the same pattern of mind, you know, that we have had in our regular life. So here's a great place to pay attention. You know, here's the lab. Here's where you get to see this. Right? But it's not so easy to look at it, right? It takes a lot of humility to look at it. It can be very painful to look at these things. It's a very common phenomenon in retreat that we think, you know, good practice is when it's very pleasant and when there's a lot of concentration and we're very calm. And then bad practice is when there's difficulty, when there's this dukkha there. So remember that this dukkha is like the thing that we're trying to understand. You know, if you can at all remember that when that comes up. So it's not bad practice when you're seeing dukkha. In fact, it's great, right? <laughs> it's great. And, you know, a lot of the structures are actually designed to highlight dukkha. So when we try to sit for, say, 45 minutes, half an hour, you know, we try to sit as still as possible, really. And then you notice the dukkha of the body, you know, that you want to move the body. And if you were sitting in a conference room or something, you would just move. You wouldn't be able to be aware of that, probably, but because we're sitting here in the hall, then you notice, like, oh, I want to move. Like, oh, there's an itch. Like, oh, there's another thing. Like, oh, no, all these different things are happening in the body that I didn't script, that I didn't want to have happen. And it's unpleasant. And I can't stop them. Right? 
So there's insight right there, it's possible. It's like, oh, could I say this is my body? Is this my body when I'm not in control of it? Like it is a body. Like there are sensations arising. So tune in to the, this, this aspect of it. You know, watch yourself when the mind is like, oh, this is bad practice because it's unpleasant. You know? I notice when I ask people about practice sometimes, like, oh, so how is walking meditation? A lot of times people will answer something like, oh, I like the walking meditation. You know? And uh, you know, from the Dharma teacher point of view, we don't actually care if you like it or not. <laughs> like, I mean, that's good if you do, but even if you don't, like, we want to know what you're noticing. We want to know that you're doing it, and then like, what you're noticing as you're doing it. So even though it may seem cruel, like, we're not that concerned with that everything is pleasant for you, that you like it all. You know? <laughs> and here, actually, I should say, like, it's pretty comfortable here, and you know, we call it the upper middle way. So it's not that... Uh, <laughs> the, the conditions... I don't want to go into too many, like, you know, we walked uphill in the snow stories, but um, I'll do a little bit. So... <laughs> In, in some monasteries in which um, many of us have practiced, you know, the, the schedule is actually quite, uh, is quite long. So they say you could sleep as long as you want up to four hours. You know? <laughs> so you know, a wake-up bell is like at 3 a.m. and then you eat something and then you sit and then you chant and then you know, all the way through, through to like you know, 10 p.m. or something like that. So uh, you know, it might seem like a harsh schedule here, but it's actually not that bad really, I'll say, you know. And I've done some retreats also in uh, places like in, in Bodh Gaya where the sleeping situation was basically all the women were in one porch where you roll out these thin mats of straw and then put out sleeping bags and then a mosquito net and then that's where you sleep and then you wake up and you practice and stuff like that. So, so relatively speaking, I think Spirit Rock is like actually pretty comfortable for us you know, here. I understand there still is a lot of renunciation to not be at home and so on like that. But, uh, so we want you to be comfortable. Like we're not about you know, making you sleep on nails and stuff like that. Um, but also, honestly, like we're not actually interested in constantly adjusting things to, to orient you to feel good all the time because we're trying to have you see the difficulty that's inherent in our human life. And you don't even need to go looking for it. You know? like it will just emerge. Right? It'll emerge on its own. The stories weren't too bad, right? It could have been worse. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at the mind, you know, and understanding the mind, it's a, a great opportunity to see this. So uh, Wes had also pointed out this, um, this poignancy to this, this Basho poem, you know, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto. And there's another one that Basho has, another haiku. First day of spring, I keep thinking about the end of autumn. (laughs) It's so so true, right? I mean, you can notice sometimes, how often is it that you're actually eating lunch, and while you're eating lunch, you're thinking about eating lunch, yeah? Like you're not actually tasting the food, you're thinking about the food. Something about the food, how it was made, or where it's going, or you're lost in some broccoli of past, or you know, other meals, you know. Like, it's so poignant to see this. Like, this is, this is the untrained mind kind of doing its thing, you know. Also helpful to notice is uh, not just the mind being 
away from uh, not attending to the present moment, but just noticing, you know, what is it that our patterns of mind are? So the Buddha said very helpfully, whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, this will become the inclination of your mind. So what are the common thought patterns that come up for you? Yeah. And are you aware of whether they are actually wholesome, helpful ones? You know, is this the inclination of your mind that you would like to develop? Or are these ones that are uh, unhelpful? You know, are these ones that actually are leading to suffering for ourselves and others? You know, are these ones that are steeped in delusion? So the, the Buddha himself, when he was uh, uh, aspiring aspiring to be an enlightened being, did some sort of thought experiments himself as he practiced. And it's very interesting to, to me to, to read these, sort of how he practiced when he was uh, interested in understanding the mind. So here's one that he did. He did the experiment of saying, like, well, what if I divide my thoughts into two different categories? On one side I put thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty. And the other side I put thoughts of renunciation, non-ill will, or loving kindness, and non-cruelty, so compassion. And then I pay attention as they arise. Okay, just sit here and be like, okay, what's this one? Okay, what's this one? So label them. So know what is here, what's arising in my mind. And then he tried to pay attention to where does this go? You know, where is this leading to? So he said he tried to pay attention to which of these are leading to the affliction of myself, to the affliction of the other, to the affliction of both. So which of these obstructs wisdom, which causes difficulty, and which basically uh, is counter to the path of liberation. Yeah. So then he noticed, like, yeah, all of these ones, sensual desire, ill will, cruelty, you know, these ones are actually counter to that. They cause a difficulty in me in the moment that they're here. They're actually agitating there's a sense of separation from others. If I followed through on what these thoughts are, they would cause harm for others. You know. Like this is actually counter to wisdom. And then he noticed the other ones, and he said, oh, like actually these ones are not counter to that. These ones are actually wholesome ones. So we can pay attention to that and sort of see, like, oh, what's the nature of our mind? You know, what is, what is the nature of suffering? What are the, the types of thoughts that arise within us? So otherwise, the untrained mind, it's a little like we're like, um, you know, children that basically pick up anything to eat from the ground, you know. So babies at a certain age, you know, they tend to take stuff and put it in their mouth, and it could be anything, right? Like a rock, or a nail, or a worm, or um, a small toy. Occasionally they get lucky and pick up like a Cheerio or something, you know. But they'll pick up anything. And so then if you're the parent of a very small child or the caretaker, like you have to watch them like a hawk, you know, because they'll do this sometimes on the sly and then they have a little pouch of something and you have to like pry it out and see what it is. Yeah. Uh, so they don't know yet you know, what's edible, what's not edible. And fortunately at a certain age you can leave them and they, can, they know already. Yeah. But when they're very young you have to really watch them or they easily will eat something very damaging to themselves. So our mind, the unenlightened mind, is actually like this small child. You know, it will basically take up, consume any thought. You know, it doesn't yet discern between this. You know, which one's leading to wisdom, which one's leading to uh, harmony, freedom. You know, it will take anything, like 
uh, jealous rage, you know, like, sure, let's eat that, let's get that, you know, consume that, go with that, right? Or then sometimes kindness, compassion, you know. Sometimes we'll eat uh, some, uh, like, grief or something like that, right? Whatever it is that comes up, you know, we'll go with it. So why is that? Like, why do we not understand this differentiation? Because it sounds, it makes so much sense when I describe it like this intellectually, right? And it's because we haven't been practicing awareness. So the wisdom has not yet been developed. I mean, in some ways you could think it's like your, the mind has, it's like a virus. It's like delusion, greed, hatred, delusion. It's like a virus in the system, you know. It's like your mind as computer. Right? So we're like now running this programs, this like mindfulness, compassion, love. You know, these are your antivirus programs you need to run, yeah. <laughs> so it's good. It's like, you know, you defragment your computer, some computers, you turn it on, it's like doing things. So, so that's what you're doing here. You're like defragmenting. <laughs> you know? You're running the antivirus software. So all you have to do to run the software is just be as gently, continuously aware as possible. You know, so just pay attention. So you don't yet have to be able to do this, to discern, to not have these ones, to have these ones. You know. You're not actually being asked to be anything but who you are here. You can be fully yourself, everything. You bring your full self here. Allow yourself to see everything that arises, all the thoughts, all the emotions that usually you don't want to see. Allow yourself to feel the physical body completely, like all the aspects that you usually want to push away or ignore or something like that. And just try to practice this kind of awareness, this openness, this mindfulness with a kind attention, just to see things as they are. So this process that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of honesty to be really honest with yourself about whatever it is that's arising like that. So being very patient with yourself, you know, as you find yourself dodging or getting overwhelmed by something, having difficulty with something, you know. But just as continuous a gentle process of being aware as you can. Notice if there ever is something that arises in your mind that's like um, some version of this sentence, like, my retreat would be great except for blank. So like, my meditation would be great except for blank. And blank could be like, my knee pain, or uh, that other guy sitting next to me is breathing too loud, (laughs) or um, being tired, or the weather being like this, or except for the fact that uh, I keep replaying these memories from something that happened in the past, or except if so-and-so didn't do something that now is making me worry about this. So be on the lookout for any tinge of that. It's very common that the mind will do that. It has, you bring an expectation, like, oh, the retreat was supposed to be like this, usually calm, peaceful, etc. It's not like that because of the knee pain the guy breathing, or the person who did something before. So that's the problem. So if you ever hear that sentence in some way, then take out the part that is like, uh, the problem. (laughs) So 
it actually is like, oh, that is my retreat. <laughs> so that is the thing for me to pay attention to. Yeah. And it's so hard to get this. Like, it's so easy to fall into like, oh, if not for this, then I would be doing fine. Right? No, actually, that is the thing for you to be paying attention to. So the thing that's presenting itself, as unglamorous as it is, the knee pain, the repetitive thought pattern, even the external thing of the guy snoring. Like, actually, this is the beautiful gift of your retreat. You know, This very seemingly annoying thing is the very thing that is the doorway to your freedom. You know? This is the helpful thing for you to pay attention to. So actually highlight that one. You know, Put a highlighter around it. So every time you want to dodge away from it, it's like, oh, okay, this is the thing for me to investigate. Often the pattern goes something like this. There's the thing you don't want to deal with, there's resistance to it. Okay, so then you have to notice that there's resistance. So a lot of the practice is like this. You notice there's resistance to something. Okay, see if you can open to resistance. Sometimes you don't even know what the resistance is too. It has jumped up so quickly when that thing has, has initiated itself. Yeah. So a lot of the practice then is just, okay, okay, this is resistance. Don't even know to what, just resistance. Feel what resistance is like. This is resistance. Feeling it in the body, feel the tension, feel the pain, all of that stuff. Right? So just be with that. As unglamorous as it is, like that is actually the thing to pay attention to. And there's some way in which we so want, want something else. You know, That also is very poignant, usually something more pleasant. Like we want the concentrated mind. We want something that happened on a past retreat. So those of you who have been on past retreats, we say that you drag the corpses of your past retreats with you to the retreat center, and then you try to revive them and you know <laughs> prop them up in something, and it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, and in fact, it causes you suffering. You, know? you miss the thing that's in front of you because you're thinking about the one in the past. Right? So this is it. This is you know, while on retreat, I long for retreat. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> So see that, see when there's resistance and see if you can be like, okay, so this is it. Like now this. You know, this is what's here now. This is what for me to be with. Yeah. And so like, you know, you think, oh, okay, I want what that guy has. Like he looks very peaceful or she looks like she's having a good time here. Like she's walking so mindfully. I, w- I want what's on her plate, you know. But here's the thing with the Dharma. It's like it's very humbling and you don't get a different plate. You just get more heapings of what's on your plate. <laughs> In fact, the more that you resist it, it's sort of like the more it turns up the volume, the more you get, right? <laughs> Until finally you're like flat out back and you have to be like, okay, surrender, you know? And sometimes it takes that. You have to be like completely rubbed in the mud, humbled, and then you're like, okay, there's nothing to do but pay attention to this, okay? So then it's good. Surrender is a good place to be. One of my Dharma friends says like, surrender every day. You know, give up every day. <laughs> give up every moment. You know, that ego part of you that wants to like, my practice, I'm doing, you know, drop it, give it up, right? Give it up every moment. Like, then you can just be with whatever's there. So what helps us in doing this? Among the things that helps is the form itself, and 
I think it also is helpful to recognize that there is a certain amount of discipline that helps in the practice. You know, the discipline of uh, continu- continuity, really. I mean, I think in the beginning, uh, there is certainly the, the discipline of sticking with the schedule and stuff. And then, you know, maybe as the practice gets its own momentum, there can be a little bit more fluidity with that. But it really is just a structure to help you to uh, pay attention, you know, to bring that kind of gentle continuity of awareness through all different aspects. And I'll read you a little bit from the, the Buddha's uh, description of practice for uh, practitioners. So this is from the Foundations of Mindfulness and the part about the body. So the beginning is very inspiring too. So this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of liberation, namely these four foundations of mindfulness. So that's what we're practicing here. So there is a way of freedom from this, some of these aspects of dukkha, and that's what we're practicing here with the mindfulness practice. So here's the instructions, and these instructions go for us here now too. So a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending her limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing their robes and carrying their outer robe and bowl, so you could say when getting dressed and going to meals, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, so that's not on the schedule, but that is also part of the practice, (laughs) who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. In this way, she abides contemplating the body as the body. So now for some people this might seem overwhelming, like really all the time, you know. But it is so easy to do for one moment. So, you know, in one moment just to remember. It's just the remembering of it. And for some of you who might be newer, if it seems extremely overwhelming, that whole gamut, then, you know, take it at least period by period. So morning period, try to do continuously. Afternoon period, try to do continuously. Those of you who have done retreat for a little bit more, you might want to challenge yourself a bit more. So try to extend a little bit. So it's possible even from the moment that you wake up to begin your practice. You know, just very gently and with interest and with love. You know, it's like, oh, okay, like awake. Even a little inquiry, like how do I know I'm awake? Like what's the difference between being awake and being asleep? And what is that process like? Can you notice that moment when you're awake? So just with a light touch, so you don't need to stress out about it or, you know, it's not something that you did wrong if you wake up and you didn't remember or something, you know. But just to sort of bring in the practice to all the different aspects and then like, okay, what's it like to brush the teeth? You know, actually feel that, notice that. You can notice if there's different, oh, it's the attitude towards brushing the teeth. Sometimes you won't notice you grip the toothbrush like a jackhammer and like, you know, like, oh, that's interesting, right? Okay. Sometimes it's a gentleness, you know, with it. So just all the different aspects of, of the day can start to be brought in. Really, you know, defecating, urinating. Sometimes I'll give a whole Dharma talk sometime about this. I think there's a lot to be seen there, right? <laughs> not today, you're lucky, but not today. 
but really, I mean, it's just like, oh, okay, I just, I mean, there's an aspect of the body. It's the other side of eating, right? The other side of eating is like, there's the food, you consider it not you. You eat it for a moment, it becomes you. Then, defecate, urinate it out, it becomes not you again, right? <laughs> like, we don't identify with it anymore. It's a sign of our body's just basic animal nature. You know, a further sign that we're just or- organic life, like same as the deer and the turkeys and the birds and everything like that, you know? Uh, so the physical act itself, the meaning of it, and then even just the, the act of like going to the, the bathroom, locking the door, when you come out, washing your hands, just feeling that very gently. So just being connected to the physical body, you know, to your life as you're doing this. So it could be seen as a discipline to do this, but it also could be seen as an act of love. You know, so there's a, there's a way that you could see this as like a devotion to your life. You know, there's a, it's easy to pay attention to the things that you love. So in some ways this is like, you know, you, you might long for someone who would be like, I love you, everything about you, every single thing. I'll never leave you. I never want to leave you, right? So you may or may not have found that person, right? But that person could be you. <laughs> Meaning... Bring awareness, not in an obsessive way, but in a, like, a loving way, you know? It's like, oh, what is it like? Be interested in all these aspects of my life, all the mundane things. And all of the mundane things, when you actually pay attention, can be so meaningful, actually. You know? Otherwise, we slice our life into the times to pay attention, the times not to pay attention. And actually, all of it could be times to pay attention. So also there is an aspect of renunciation with this too. So renunciation like letting go. And, you know, just like I was saying about, you know, the training the, the child like what to eat and not to eat. So sometimes we have to say like, okay, don't pick that up, right? So similarly, if we're, if we're practicing and the mind's like, you know, like Wes was saying, like, let's go to my room and look at my stuff, he said, right? You know, so sometimes you have to be like, renounce that, let go of that. Like, okay, not now. Like, okay, sticking, sticking with the practice. Like, okay, thanks for the suggestion, right? Like, you don't have to indulge the monkey mind all the time, you know? So it takes some renunciation, some letting go of aspects of mind and even aspects of the body, too. But really, there's a, an aspect of it that is, um, is a lot about developing kindness, too. So connecting with our own difficulty, connecting with our own life, is really an act of kindness. So I have a poem that um, I read some excerpt from that is, uh, connects with this. So this is a poem called Kindness by Naomi Shehab Nye. So I'll read some parts of it. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. 
Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So kindness and dukkha are connected in this way. And the more we're able to connect with and know the pain of our own lives, so the poignancy of our situation as human beings, you know, of being in this fragile space of being subject to physical forces and harm, of being subject to getting sick, to getting old, to having the body do things you don't want it to do. You know. The more we can face the mental difficulties we have and open to that and without pushing them away. So know what it's like to grieve. You know what it's, what it's like to feel pain, anguish. Allow your heart to break in a way that you might never allow it to break in other circumstances. So here you have time to allow it to break. You have the space for that. And then there's actually spaciousness in which you can hold the whole world. You actually can hold everyone. So it's helpful to remember as you touch into your own pain, your own difficulty, your own sorrow, it's not just your own sorrow. Like that's actually just the a piece of humanity that's manifesting at this moment in your mind-body system. It's not unique to you. You're in fact probably one of millions of people at this very moment who is experiencing this physical pain, this irritation, this sorrow, this anger. You know, it's like there's a giant kaleidoscope that keeps shifting and all of us come at different points you know, into the lens of this color and this color and this color of joy, of sorrow, of pain, of pride, of anguish, like that. So it can be helpful then to hold that with that too. It's like, all right, may I know this state of difficulty? So may I know this so that I can experience this actually and know this for all of us? So that can help make you very compassionate. You know? That can help put you in touch with all of the pain that's there for people you don't know, people you do know, and help you not to be afraid of that whenever that comes into your life through yourself or someone else. So I think we have a, a really good opportunity here. And I, again, I'm very happy for you that you've chosen to come on retreat, as I said the first day. You know, and that you've stayed on retreat, too. <laughs> so please use the opportunity well. You know, there's such a great opportunity to see into the mind-body system, to understand these things, uh, to actually come close to the things that we usually shy away from. And we're in a great situation here with others who are trying to do the same thing, you know, with the teachers who try and help you to do that, you know, all the staff providing food and all the things we need to do this very important, very precious, uh, and sometimes difficult work of seeing into the heart and mind system, you know, of being able to have the courage to face this dukkha that's not just yours, but there for all of humanity. 
So here's where the gift of what you're doing will benefit, not just yourself, but everyone you'll come in contact with you know, for the rest of your lives. So in case any doubts have come up you know, in these last few days, this is time well spent. You've spent your Thanksgiving week in a really good way. You know. Trust the practice. So you don't see necessarily moment to moment you know, what happens. Take your own judgment of it with a grain of salt. Like, I'm getting better, I'm doing worse, I learned something, I didn't learn something, I should keep going, I should give it up. Right? Take that whole monkey mind commentary with a grain of salt. And just practice with this devotion to your life, you know, devotion to the present moment, a gentle persistence as much as you can. And the benefits will come for yourself and for everyone that you meet. So thank you for your attention this evening. Let's sit together for a moment. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, speak to it, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows. And you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head to say, it's you I've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. <laughs> 